0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I am your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking with Michael Welsh today. Dr. Welsh is a professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado and is the author of the new book, Big Bend National Park, Mexico, the United States, and a Borderland Ecosystem, which came out with the University of Nevada Press in 2021. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mike. Good to have you here.
0: Right, Thank you, Steve.
1: Why don't we start, as we always do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you and who you are. So why don't you tell us a bit about your background? And what I'm really interested in is how you became uh, uh, fascinated by history and the history of the West in particular. All right.
0: Well... I must say, when I start, that uh, I tell my students that uh, we don't know what the future holds, uh, whether that's historically or personally. And so I suppose that I came to my appreciation of the history uh, business and the study of the West in that business, uh, I don't want to say accidentally, but uh, not by design. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at a university in the Midwest, the University of Dayton in Ohio did not have a Western history emphasis, but I also was majoring in political science. And so my interest was more in government, public policy, organization, uh, systems, those sorts of things. The second feature I suppose about my background was that as I became more intrigued with the intersection of the political, uh, uh, not the political diplomatic military dynamic, but the intersection of uh, politics, organization, government, especially in the 20th century, uh, I started to realize that there was not much about the American West that was being studied. Certainly, 30, 40 years ago, and I guess the third thing that intrigued me was uh, I started reading about uh, Native people and their stories because 30 to 40 years ago was the you know the nation movement. Uh, for uh, you know native studies now indigenous studies so there was a lot of newness about the west newness about the subject matter and so uh, I decided to uh, pursue a graduate degree in history rather than political science uh, at the University of New Mexico Uh, my advisors had told me uh, to quote the famous uh, newspaper publisher whose town is named for him here where I live Greeley Colorado Horace Greeley said go west so I did and so that is how I came to be in situ in the West to learn it rather than studying it either from a distance, uh, virtually, if you will.
1: Well, on that note, I'm curious about your relationship to the topic at hand. Um, what brought you to Big Bend National Park? Are you a longtime visitor to Big Bend National Park? Uh, what's, what's your relationship to this particular place?
0: Well, once again, I don't want to beg off. I just want to talk about the sort of irony of our journeys uh, that's what I tell my students uh, you don't know the future, you know, till you uh, until you get there. Um, so going to school at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, as I'm sure quite a few of your listeners uh, know, uh, you're surrounded by the West, a particular subset of the West, uh, Southwest. Uh, you're also surrounded by environmental and cultural forces uh, of longstanding and then the third thing is, is that if you have professors that are interested in these topics, uh, they will encourage you to pursue those kinds of avenues. So I did not start out to write about national parks, nor did I start to write about Big Ben. I started out wanting to study sort of native life in the Southwest, uh, but then I came to realize that you know, there were a lot of other dimensions mer- emerging, one of which was the environment, uh, and, of course, there was a lot of newness there, too. So I don't want to say I was a newbie, but it certainly questions that are now more mature uh, were all surging with culture, environment, politics, organization, government, et cetera. So uh, it, I came to uh, be interested in the national parks, uh, not through my graduate studies, but through a uh, colleague or a, a peer of mine in graduate school at the University of New Mexico who got a job with the Santa Fe office of the National Park Service. And uh, after we graduated, uh, you know, he came to me one day and said, we need some people who will write store uh, histories of our parks uh, in the Southwest, don't have much money. Uh, so can you shortcut it? You already know the place, doesn't cost a whole lot to travel to it, et cetera. So he said, would you want to go down to White Sands National Monument, Southern uh, New Mexico? So I said, I'd be willing to do that. I wound up writing a history of their activities, not knowing how important the atomic bomb was uh, to them. Uh, at the same time I was doing this, I had also been working for another government agency in Albuquerque, the US Army Corps of Engineers. And they asked me to write the history of their regional activities in the Southwest, and they built Los Alamos and Trinity site. So I saw a circle closing around me. Uh, I would do more army engineer work out in California, but the other window that opened was National Parks. White Sands became utterly fascinating for its organizational historical dimensions uh, as well as its environmental and cultural. And from that, I then was asked to start doing some other studies, Fort Davis, National Historic Site in West Texas, uh, which was a frontier post near the Mexican border uh, and it also had uh, a contingent of the Buffalo Soldiers, which are now uh, au courant in a lot of study of cultural history of the West. Um, I then was asked to write a history of uh, Petroglyph National Monument on the west side of Albuquerque, the rock carvings of Native people uh, who lived there several thousand years ago. Uh, the National Park Service now preserves their stories in stone, Uh I then was asked at the same time to take a look at Big Bend, because of my work that it was sort of emerging, uh, a, a understanding a region for which there wasn't much interest within the Park Service, uh, the border. Uh, Thirty years ago, the twenty-five years ago, the border was not the question it would become uh, after nine one one, and certainly with the political dynamics of the last decade or so on. So. I don't want to say it was all by default. I don't want to say it was accidental and I don't want to say it was inadvertent. So it was the perhaps classic path of the the scholar of the region. Uh, You just keep exploring other questions in the region. And so my original curiosity about government and organization and systems uh, to which you can then add your cultural resources and your natural resources so that is how I eventually came around to the work on Big Ben.
1: Yeah. And I, I got to say, and we'll talk a, a good amount about this when we get into the book itself, but national parks are really a tremendous avenue for understanding the intersection of the stuff that you're talking about, the political yes. and the cultural and the environmental. They all, you know, they 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 they, they all sort of interconnect, use that term again, in, in these places. So that's going to be a theme going forward. But I'm, I'm starting to see the trajectory that you're talking about here.
0: Well, there's also a fourth dimension, if you will. My students tease me and say the fourth dimension is the unknown, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know, the mm -hmm. paranormal, you know, the one they like to travel to from time to time. Right. And the fourth dimension is diplomatic. Right. Very few national parks have a diplomatic quotient in their records, in their in their trajectory, uh, you know, in, in their history. So you have your politics, you have your culture, you have your environment. And you have your diplomacy. So I guess if I may use a bad pun, it's not three-dimensional at all. It's a a four-dimensional story that uh, takes a lot of imagining, may I, to uh, explain
1: why that
0: uh, becomes part of the chapters. It becomes part of the questioning that we're going to explore today.
1: Well, let's get into the story about this place. And I think to tell the story properly, we have to start with the place itself. So sure. can you maybe take like a like a, like an eagle's eye view and describe Big Bend National Park? Where are we? What is this place like for those that have never been there before, maybe even never heard of it before?
0: Well, I had never been there either, even though I had been to, uh, uh, you know, I'd been to parks in the southwest, uh, you know, my spouse was from Dallas. Her family was from Midland, Texas, which, uh, you know, as people reminded me when I started working on this history, it was the closest airport, 250 miles to the north of Big Bend. So I did have some family stories, you know, early on, but, you know, they were just curiosities. Um, the second way that, you know, I came to know this environment was through the work at Fort Davis. Because Fort Days is about 120 miles to the north. And so it has much a much similar ecology, uh, much similar cultural history. Um, so it, it was not a surprise to me that Big Bend would be this dramatic environmental and cultural landscape. But you have to go there and see it to believe it. And that's not just park service promotion. It, it You know, it sells itself uh, for those who are drawn to that. Uh, It does not have the great visitation, so I was drawn to Big Bend, I think, because the Park Service historians saw the progression of my thinking rooted in a regional consciousness and a sort of wide-angle lens that they have to take. Uh, They have to study so many questions that are not on the minds of historians or social scientists. Um, they, ha- they have to study questions of management, they have to study questions of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, of, uh, promo- of uh, advertising and visitation and so on. So I think Big Bend uh, was suggested to me, I put in a bid, uh, I got the uh, contract, uh, then went and pay- paid a visit, was taken in by the park people, toured it, and it was made apparent, it was made quite apparent to me that going there 25 years ago, that was a great moment of change for the park service. Uh, It was a great moment of change for Mexico, uh, and it was a great moment of change for Texas um, in those days. And so my goal was not just to do a conventional analysis of all the dynamics of park management, it was also to touch upon all the sort of uh, issues surging through the daily life of the park uh, to try to make that story matter more than uh, something other than what other something that is right and
1: the so park itself. Like... yeah no sorry by, by all means i was i was just going to say that that the park itself it's this very arid region and it's right mm-hmm. along the mexican-american border in mm-hmm. texas and it's uh, uh i've never been there myself i've been sort of in the region but it's a very mm-hmm. you know striking mountainous sort of place um can you what, what were your first impressions when you first visited there well
0: I had asked, you know, people about it, and of course, I'd made quite a few trips to the Fort Davis area and El Paso, um, having gone to school at the University of New Mexico and having written about the Army Engineers in the Southwest. You know, I wrote; I'd spent time in El Paso, studied their uh, flood control, studied their uh, military base, Fort Bliss. So, you know, it was it was it was not a it was not a it was not a surprising to me perhaps uh, as it might have been otherwise. Uh, my first impressions of going into the park was how fortunate I was to have park service people as guides, uh, not just as tour guides with me for an afternoon, uh, but people who are trying to guide me to understand them. And the second thing that struck me when I got there was that there was a, a multi-dimensional story that was not only quadrangular, as we have described, But it was, uh, you know, it was uh, multidisciplinary and it was multicultural and it was multilinear. The story lines ran out in a variety of directions into the United States, down into Mexico. And then I guess the third dimension is Texas. You know, Texas uh, loves to talk about how it's a whole other country and that sort of thing. Texas played a, a powerful role in the shaping of the park uh, and, uh, accepting it, rejecting it. Um, you know, the Texas dynamic is its own story, the U S dynamic, the Mexican dynamic, the environmental dynamic. So my great good fortune was to have, uh, uh you know, not just professionals, but practitioners of, um, you know, sort of multi-layered thinking. Uh, and they were just marvelous in guiding me there. And so that's why I became so enamored of getting that story out that eventually becomes the book that we have today.
1: Well, let's go back into the deep history of of this place that would become Big Bend. Who are some mm-hmm. of the people that have lived in Big Big Bend uh, uh, in the more distant past? And how did they live in this uh, uh, pretty remote and very yep. dry landscape? Yep.
0: Well, one of the things about that environment that you described is that it obviously wasn't that way forever. But deep time, you know, does go back to the, time, to the moment when there was no mountains and no desert. And were, you know, we all understand that now. But what the forward trajectory of deep time is the sort of drying out of the landscape. And one of those was the erosion uh, of the streams through the uplift. And so it carved uh, a sort of uh, erratic pattern of uh, streams and the river itself and so the uh park gets its name from the term that was used uh, to describe the sort of 45 degree angle that the park takes uh at its southernmost point you know i mean it's 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 not complicated the river bends bends of rivers gila bend arizona you know fort bend texas i mean river bends bend oregon it's such a common, simple term from long ago. So the term Big Ben came from the erosional pattern in which uplift occurred as the river was cutting and it forced the river like a cue ball on a pool table to bank and then angle away from its original trajectory. So there's a striking environmental geological dynamic that shaped it. The second thing about that landscape what sort of plant and animal life could survive in that dryness. Uh, The extremes uh, are dramatic. Uh, You can be on the river uh, in April and rafting and you have that sort of humidity bubble over the river and the temperature will stay in the 70s, uh, 80s in May, 90s in June on the river, but it's tolerable. But you leave the river and you go 100 yards And you leave the you know, the environment, the moisture evaporates quickly. And so the temperature can start going up by 10 to 20 degree increments every few hundred yards. So you can be a quarter mile to the parking lot from the river and you're near 100 in April. And so that shaped uh, plant life and animal life. And then a third thing is your mountains. Because they are the highest mountains uh, west of, um, you know, I guess, Pennsylvania. You know, if you do a straight line, it's higher than anything north into Kansas and Nebraska and whatever. And it was uplift that created that. Uh, you have to go on on further up to the Guadalupe Mountains on the border of New Mexico and, and Texas near Carlsbad uh, to get higher. Uh, the, mountain peak, the mountain peak is uh, you know, 7,800. So you will have a different ecozones in the mountains as well as different ecozones on the landscape all around you. That's part of the fascination of Big Ben towards uh, natural scientists, um, wildlife managers, because you will have within a 20, 30 mile drive uh, uh, from the river at 1800 feet up to the top of the mountain at 7,800 feet, you get to see so many life zones and you also see, uh, plants and animals that uh, are now on what they call sky islands. You know, it's just in the sky. There is this sort of ecozone that doesn't share itself with anywhere else. And so it's a, it's a very isolated uh, land for plants and animals. So the question then is who lives there? Who would come into that zone? Well, the answer is not many people then and not many people now because the body is 90 plus percent fluid. Uh, The body does not tolerate heat Uh, to any degree. There is nothing you can do about it, Um, you know, absent uh, advanced technology, air conditioning and so on. So um, so you had to be adaptable to the harshness and the starkness and the isolation. That is something that was shared by the native societies, you know, maybe millennia ago and the tourists who come today they all confront despite all the technological advances we can bring there's places you just cannot get cell phone service because it, the signal cannot reach uh, no matter how hard you send it it isn't just that there aren't enough people paying for cell phone service in a given area it's just that if you wanted to send a signal it won't get there the cuts in the in the 20 foot wide Uh, you know, uh, you know, cuts in the canyons and things like that. Um, The TV signals can't get in there. So uh, if you live there, you know, you had to adapt. Um, A second thing about who lived there long ago, the native people, they didn't stay. If they stayed anywhere, they stayed along the river and they farmed in the lowlands, the wetlands. But it was a very, very much subsistence economy and it was a very local economy. There was very little trade. Uh, there, there, and uh, so, there, and the, so the isolation was profound for them, too. Uh, but there was a third kind of person that came in, besides those that didn't stay or those that farmed. Eventually, as in the 1700s into the 1800s, uh, Native people from the plains started coming through. Uh, as Mexican villages were moving out, Spanish first, Mexican second, uh, the Spanish were trying to establish uh, colonies t- to the north. Uh, there had been mineral strikes to, down near Chihuahua City, about 250 miles southwest of uh, Big Bend, uh, and so it was the classic American, um, you know, imperial creep—slow but sure. No, no great gold rush leap, just the slow and steady advance, living along river riverbed, riverbanks, and so on. So you had these Spanish-speaking communities coming. The Spanish government couldn't find very many people to settle. And so they sent soldiers with their spouses and their families. So in some ways, these were military outposts with a village connected to them. And you tried to have a ring of them around the south side of the river uh, because the mountains were higher and it wasn't as dry and desert-like. And the second thing about that was that you were vulnerable. And so raiders started coming down from the north. And the most prominent were people whom the Spanish thought they heard the word Apache. And then they thought they heard the word Comanche. And so both of them were competing against each other to control this harsh desert landscape. I don't want to use any analogies about any other desert parts of the world where people fight viciously. Or control. I will leave that to your listeners to determine how that's a universal, not just a unique phenomenon to us in the Big Bend country, but maybe the need to control the few resources and the few people drives you more. The Comanches were better at it, and the Comanches became so prominent driving north and south through the mountains and on down into Mexico that the highway that leads from Midland, down to big bend is called the comanche war trail in the old records and now it's just called the comanche trail Uh, there was a movie or tv series made years ago uh, by a texas native named larry mcmurtry called lonesome dove and it's all about comanche moon it's all about how once the big moon in august and september the harvest moon appeared it was easier to travel it was cooler and people were cultivating or were harvesting their crops, and you swept into the village, and the moonlight in the middle of the night was how you navigated the plains and the mountains. And so it had seen violence long before English-speaking people came. And so there's your early people, your traveling people, your settling people. The Spanish priests, when they came down from El Paso down the river, and start noticing these places. They start giving real simple names like Presidio, the fort, you know, the presiding center because you just built a fort there. Uh, they gave uh, names to the people, they called him Humano. It's sometimes spelled J-U-M-A-N-O because Humano is the Spanish word for human being. They did not really define them as a tribe. They were just living along this, these rivers um very simple terminology and uh, the spanish also gave a name to the mountains in the, the, the center of uh, big ben they call them chizos because they had heard a word in mexico from the nahua speakers of northern new mexico very common language spoken in central and northern new mexico Nahuatl, and uh the word in nahua for a wild person is chi. And so they added the Spanish suffix so, sa, chisa, chiso. And what it meant was the land of the wild people. And they had the Paso de Chisos, the corridor through the mountains that they popped out of across the river to raid and trade. So there are so many connections, native Spanish, as well as points of conflict. Uh, eventually, There was a story told by the people who settled in these villages that the Chimanches would not steal everything you had because they left you enough seed, they left you enough tools and horses and women and children so that when they came back next year, you would have started over again. So it's a complicated, layered, uh, challenging landscape. And the people that lived in there demonstrated that through the conflict interaction dynamic that maybe it's still there today.
1: So the the story that you tell in in this book it deals quite a bit with Big Bend as a national park. So it's mm-hmm. it's quite a bit about about 20th mm-hmm. century history in this part yes. of kind of southwestern Texas. So I want to make sure that we spend a good amount of time talking about that period, but mm-hmm. briefly before we get into the 20th century, what is the early American kind of national history of Big Bend? How do Americans eventually mm-hmm. enter into this picture, into the story? What do they make of this place at first in the 19th century? before this whole idea of national parks even was a thing, even existed? Well, the,
0: if you start off with the American story in the early 1800s, coming west and exploring the first phase of American interest, there was none. The only interest America had in that, in that part of uh, North America at all was the eastern half of Texas through the settlement of uh, Stephen F. Austin, uh, eventually the Texas Republic, uh, Texas Revolution, War with Mexico, et cetera. So there was that Uh, they then when the United States took over Texas as a state in 1845, then you started sending your army explorers out, uh, you know, your next generation after your Lewis and Clark's, you know, your John C. Fremont's and others. And so explorers were sent first to just see if there were any trails across that landscape. And then when the United States took over the land officially in 1848 after the war with Mexico and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, one of the clauses in the treaty said the United States would survey the Rio Grande. And so William H. Emery and his reconnaissance mission was the first official entry of Americans to do the exploration that we had seen with Lewis and Clark uh, much earlier. Uh, or Fremont in the 1840s uh, coming to, you know, California, Northwest, uh, Colorado, and so on. So there was no Santa Fe Trail connection. There was no Oregon Trail. There was no pathway of Americans out. So it was the U.S. Army that came through. And uh, Emory's people, you might find interesting, did not un- know the landscape at all. And so, and there were no guides. I mean, where are you going to find a guide to help you? So they, they coordinated with Mexican officials. So they had fought each other in 1846 and 47. And in 1850, they joined together and they start marching southeast from El Paso to plot the landscape. And so it was Mexican army engineers. This is where my work on the army engineers in the Southwest came into play because it was not surprising at all how often in the past, We're good friends now with Japan. We're good friends with uh, Vietnam. We can do it, can't we, with with Germany? Uh, So to get to know that land, we had to ask the people that knew it better than us. And so we plotted the landscape. And so the boundary line was drawn. And from that day on, the 1850s, there's still an agency called the International Boundary and Water Commission, IDVWC, with American and Mexican officials sharing information, sharing office space. As well as hubs in the United States and Mexico City, so the early, the earliest American entry into there, you might say, was rather peaceful. So the second dimension of American interest in there is uh, in the 1860s with the Civil War, because once the Americans win, the once the North wins the Civil War, sends the Reconstruction troops out, they then start sending the. Uh, They they start sending uh, the surveyors out to figure out how to use the land and then how to lay railroads. And so the railroad surveys uh, that had started in the 1850s but never got anywhere near, they were rebooted for 1860s and 1870s. And so then you had another official entry into the region, uh, which was much more detailed. Uh, A third dimension then was as the railroad came out from San Antonio due west all the way to El Paso and went a hundred miles north of Big Bend, uh, cattle ranchers start coming out because the cattle were all in the southern part of Texas. And so it was a much easier, uh, you know, journey to run your cattle a hundred miles north up to Abilene or up to uh, Alpine, Texas or or to Midland than it was to take them all the way to Abilene, Wichita, etc. So some cattle ranching developed, but not as much clearly as further on the plains into Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, et cetera. Uh, A second thing that happened was the animals ate up a lot of the grass. And so they sort of uh, uh, stripped it of its vegetation. And so the erosion that was natural um, occurred and there was nothing to hold it. And so it got overgrazed by the early 1900s. So that phase was not very successful either except for the few ranchers who could make a go of it. Well then the next phase into the 20th century, do you want me to go beyond 1900 now or do you want to shift and start talking about the modern section, the modern uh, times? Because by 1900 very few people out there, numbers are very small uh, you know this who knew anything good was going to come in the 20th century? So it was a sort of, um, you know, it was a lost, it was a lost uh, continent, lost landscape, something like that, rather than this sort of surging America across the, uh, the Great Plains.
1: Well, I think that actually leads nicely into my next question, because it's around the same time period that the idea first starts getting bandied about of setting Big Bend aside as some sort of public mm-hmm. space. So can you talk a bit about the genesis of the idea of Big Bend as a national park, maybe put this particular region in the larger context of national park history?
0: Well, the idea that the landscape was losing value or the landscape never had value Fits with that thesis of a Park Service scholar named Alfred Runte, uh, who you may have encountered his work, you know, with others. You know, he is the sort of lodestar of a lot of thinking because of the timeline he created and the sort of suggesting of many more studies other than what he could do in 20 page chapters. His uh, thesis fits well here that you couldn't decide whether the land was monumental, stunning, overwhelming, jaw-dropping, and had to be saved and then perhaps commercialized, Mm -hmm. or it was worthless. And there was no point doing anything for this, but because no one else wanted it, the federal government by default would take it. Uh, I'm thinking of why the federal government gave away land in the Homestead Act in the first place, the good land for the railroad grants was being given out. Uh, the, the lesser lands had to be given out free 160 acre farms for a $10 fee. So the tension between the monumentalism and the worthlessness di- dialectic of Alfred runte will fit here to get us started. The second thing is, is that uh, after 1900, the conservation movement starts to develop uh, in the United States. And for the West, it is the preservation of natural beauty. Well, Big Ben's got a problem there. It does not have that uh, you know, stunning beauty uh, forests, rivers, waterfalls. There's no Yosemite, no Yellowstone, no Rocky Mountain National Park uh, features to it, right? So Big Ben won't be promoted because of that conservation idea. But the third thing that is surging maybe because of the uh, westward, the 20th century Western movement and the conservation movement with it is the idea of tourism, first with the railroad and then by the 1920s with the automobile. So Big Bend, in a way, is no surprise at all as a unit of the Park Service flowing out of all or stimulated by the forces that make so many of the parks, um, you know, attractive. So you have those forces, but in the middle of all of that, there is a sort of dark cultural moment that challenged those who wanted to promote the park because other places are doing the same thing, conservation, tourism, the economic benefits of that. The dark moment is the Pershing Expedition into Mexico in 1916 after Francisco Pancho Villa uh, leads the raid uh, in into out of Ohinaga into Presidio. Presidio is the nearest town of any size to the west. It's about 70, about 80 miles due west of Big Bend. Um, and so what happened down in Big Bend was the federal government decided it needed to send troops because Pancho Villa's lieutenants came across the river and attacked a small uh, outpost uh, on what is now... Big Bend Park land, Neville Springs, and four soldiers were killed. And so there had to be both retaliation for that and sending a message, don't do it again. So the fighting force is organized. And then something else develops. And that is the awareness that the war in Europe, or the Great War, as they called it in the day, is not going well for the people we support. And so the crisis moment in the summer of 1916 for Woodrow Wilson, as he's running for president, and people are saying, do something about, you know, England and France not being able to, you know, push the Germans back, the stalemate concept and the mega death that was coming about because of that. When Pancho Villa attacks in the fall of 1916, first at Ohinaga Presidio and then west, Col- of El Paso and Columbus, New Mexico, the president's hands are tied. Like so many other presidents have had their hands tied by events they couldn't control. And so the pressure was on to not just retaliate against Villa, it was to go get him. And then the second thing was to send a huge fighting force to make sure that that wouldn't happen. And then the third thing was to test out all of the equipment uh, supplies, command structures that we might need if we were to go to Europe at some point soon. wasn't going to happen in the winter of 1916? But maybe spring. And so uh, there, you know, some call the uh, Pancho Villa attacks for the Big Bend area. Their 911, their Pearl Harbor moment, their Fort Sumter moment. Suddenly, the outside world rushes down there, and so the army. Engineers that I studied, they built up the motor pool outside of Columbus, New Mexico, far beyond. It was for 10,000 soldiers. VIA might have five, 600 guys on horseback and stuff like that. So that violent confrontation then prompted a lot of tension and anxiety and then racial animosity on both sides. Um, so it was a tough moment for anyone who was trying to think of making big ben flow into the stream of consciousness of parks conservation economic development it was it, it was a crisis that uh, wasn't going to go away anytime soon.
1: So then what happens next? How does Big Bend eventually become a national park? When does it receive this designation? Who are some of the instrumental people in in making this actually happen? And how did they make their case that Big Big Bend should, in fact, be set aside as a park?
0: Well, the great irony of that and the great irony for uh, Texas as well is that When the 1920s, uh, as the 1920s unfolded, America needed good news. I just finished a lesson with my students today on the good news of the 1920s, urbanization, uh, consumer culture, uh, technology, uh, sports, music clothes, it just, you know, a cornucopia of good fortune of the 1920s. At the same time, there was a second track of consciousness developing, And that was needing to escape from the stress of those same cities, not go live in the country off the grid because you liked what was in the city. It was just to leave the grid behind for a little while and sample the landscape. So the automobile, the highways, the good roads movements, uh, there was a whole bunch of of organizations wanting to pave all-weather routes through the West. There was an organization called the uh, Highway 26 Association that wanted to run a highway diagonally through Texas that you know, will come near uh, Big Bend. There you know, there was the Route 66 movement to you know get all the way out to California. There was a, uh, the Pan-American Highway uh, over in New Mexico following the Rio Grande. All of that was designed to bundle together the tourism economy, the conservation movement, uh, the uh, management of that for uh, better quality of services, there were so many features because the automobile required all of that for itself. And so those who were promoting that dynamic turned to the south, southern part of Texas and said, well, you know, if we, can, if we can run a highway like 26 across the Nevada desert or across the Arizona desert, let's do it here. So it's no surprise that some of the early promoters sold cars in Alpine, in El Paso. They said. Then there were the hotel uh, managers who, you know, weren't getting a whole lot of railroad traffic. The car is replacing the train as conveyance for, for uh, visitor tourists. Right? And then there were the local of- officials who needed uh, tax revenue and it wasn't coming. From grazing anymore, and there's not a whole lot of oil uh, down there. So Big Bend started to emerge in the 20s in Texas as a logical 20th century economic uh, attraction, uh, very up to date, uh, national man, national promotion uh, to get the kind of visitor who was driving out to the much larger parks in other areas of the country. So. Those kind of features, the economic development features, are surging everywhere. And so one more piece to bring the Park Service into all of this, the idea of naturalism, naturalism, the study of the environment, ecology that was rising in, you know, uh, wildlife uh, studies, uh, plant and animal, plant, uh, you know, ecology. Uh, there was a great deal of that in the 1920s as well, botany uh, and so on. And so some people start coming out and they were just stunned. They were stunned at the reptiles. they found fossils. Uh, uh, school groups came out from major universities to spend the summer digging, uh, not for gold, but for, you know dinosaurs. So you had then a whole new generation of interest in the scientific, natural, environmental, as well as the more pragmatic economic and political dynamics. And those those were the kind of people who then joined with locals who realized 10, 20 years from now, we're not going to make it or we can't hand it off to our kids. Let's just give in to the 20th century and let's go for it. Now, whether that was prominent in other parts of Texas, it was in Dallas, it was in Houston, it was in the big cities. They were going to be the source of uh, tourism, people thought. And so newspapers uh, in uh, Dallas uh, and Houston started sending reporters out and started marketing this. And so by the 1930s, they would then be the messengers of Big Ben's wonders. It's magic. And it's escape from the city.
1: And one of the early ideas for Big Bend National Park was that this place could be um, an international peace park. You know, this this sort of site on the border between two different countries and a place that, as you said before, had often been a site of violence and of animosity yes. as well. So yes. can you explain how this idea comes about and why it turns out to be such a complex and to use one of the phrases used in the book, such a dramatic concept as well?
0: Well, You can bring quite a few scholars to your podcast who can talk about the interaction conflict dynamic that has existed for 150, 175 years between the United States and Mexico. Mm -hmm. What Big Ben represented, though, for those who started to promote the International Peace Park idea was a chance to turn away from that long and often... Um, tragic trajectory that many others have written about, still write about uh, those who have gained advantage politically perhaps, economically uh, from highlighting those differences so it's a profound story if there was no park we start with that so why does the Park Service walk into an area like this with a history of tension, cultural tension, and a landscape so isolated and going to be so expensive to develop, to scale up to the quality of the visitor that you're trying to bring. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I don't mean to use a sort of simplistic term, but today we might say it was gonna be a heavy lift. All those things had to be brought forward, advanced, scaled up. So the change that occurred for Big Bend comes in two parts. One is, by the late 1920s, the idea of setting lands aside for economic benefit, uh, economic development, uh, maybe escape from cities, was starting to take hold in Congress. And one of the ironies of the political dynamic of the late 20s is that the president, Herbert Hoover, who, as you know well, Uh, had a deserved reputation for looking helpless in the face of economic change. Now, was it because he just wasn't very bright? Or was it because the forces were so strong to not do anything about the economy? But at the same time, he can't move on economic reform. He is drawn to the idea that maybe national parks and conservation can be projected forward as some sort of uh, wellness or mindfulness solution. We talk so much about that today. Positivity, what do they cost? Who can argue with wanting to feel good? eh? I can argue about my taxes. I can argue about giving uh, government programs to the undeserving, all the things that were pushed against uh, Hoover, but who can argue with this? So as the depression deepened, in the late 20s and early 30s, before the Roosevelt administration, the second Roosevelt, the irony is Teddy started pushing cons- conservation. It then dips teens and 20s, comes back again for FDR. But in, the, in between that, Hoover starts designating public lands. Uh, he designates White Sands that I write about. He designates Carlsbad. You know, Guadalupe, he's so areas that have the worthless, uh, you know, dynamic, not the monumental. Those were already set aside. So Hoover starts setting aside lands just on what, what would we say today on spec? On speculation. Do something with it. It's not costing us anything. Nothing's happening to him. So that movement is surging. And then when Franklin Roosevelt's people take over. Their New Deal idea is to push against so many sort of obstacles, economic, political, cultural, environmental for us out in the Big Bend area. And that's where your Civilian Conservation Corps will be sent down to the area, not to create a park at first, just to do your roads, you know, just to deal with your erosion, what have you. Uh the soil conservation people went down to study. Can anything be done with this overgrazed land? Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation is sent in. Can we dam the Rio Grande somewhere in a canyon, trap the water, you know, use it to irrigate some some of that land down there? So there were a host of New Deal agencies coming to the Big Bend area. The Park Service was just one, mm-hmm. but the organ, the government agency that. Then comes to the Big Bend area in the nineteen thirties that changes the character of the conversation is the State Department, because the Roosevelt administration was also pushing the idea of the Good Neighbor Policy. So wherever Roosevelt's people could carry the message of being friends with Mexico, uh, not just its own State Department people, but Interior, um, uh, you know, uh, Defense or War Department. Uh, Postal Service, wherever. We're friends with Mexico. So the State Department starts sending people down to the border, up and down. And one of the messages that comes back is, well, we we would like to have a better working relationship with the United States. We, too, in Mexico would like uh, tourism. Uh, and uh, a new administration in 1934 takes over in Mexico, uh, Lázaro Cárdenas, Cardedismo, as is called in Mexico, for six years, in which he promotes progressive ideas. One of which is environmental protection, forests, uh, you know, eroded eroded lands, and so on. So there's a lot of similarity in the progressive thinking of Roosevelt and Mexico. That, and so the State Department says, "Well, we had started an idea with Canada in the early '30s." to create an international peace park on the border, uh, Alberta and Montana, uh, Waterton Lakes and Glacier. It was part of an early 30s idea, uh, the Carnegie Institute, Andrew Carnegie's money went towards not just, uh, you know, uh, setting up colleges and uh, and or uh, libraries. He also was setting up a peace institute that still exists, Institute for the Study of Peace, and they came up with the idea in the early thirties, why don't we have these shared eco zones managed together? And uh, that demonstrates how, you know, we can rise above these sort of, you know, current tensions, political, economic, racial, and the environment unites us. So that's how 32, 33, you get your waters and lakes glacier. And so the state department then said, let's do it for Mexico and the United States. So in comes State Department people, Spanish speaking diplomat or staffers, in comes money for studies, and the Park Service is energized to add to its portfolio of of, uh, ecosystem protection and park development, in comes the diplomatic dynamic. So we could go on and talk about then how the park itself for before five years or the Park Service deals with that that's a different story than how it plays out is that okay to sort of seg- segment it
1: yes yeah please keep 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 going i mean right. what i i'm, I'm curious about it, how no oh, no but yeah you you talk
0: <laughs> okay uh, because the, the point being how much of this is <laughs> like me it's inadvertent uh it's just a flow of time it's a journey but once things appear and make sense and then you go you have the skills the knowledge to move these things forward there would be no Big Bend if there had not been this sort of constellation of agencies, uh, some of which wanted to change the landscape, <clears throat> some of which saw no value in the landscape. The military decided they weren't going to put any military bases down there. Um, it was fine with us. They said, "You know, what, who's going to attack from there?" We we taught Pancho Villa a lesson and so on. So once the stars aligned, if you will, for the International Peace Park, that. Elevated it in the minds of tourism promoters. It elevated the minds of congressional officials who voted on it. It elevated elevated in the minds of Mexican government officials. You know, I there, you know, the old cliche about victory, having a thousand fathers. Suddenly everybody's on the bandwagon. The cliches apply. Everybody wanted to see it go forward. Roosevelt talked about how he wanted it happen. Staff went to meetings in Mexico. Mexican officials came to the United States. Uh, So the turning point for the park service within that, you you know, moment of change was they put together a study team first to just figure out should it be a park or not. And they assigned a man named Roger Toll from Denver, who had been a superintendent at Rocky Mountain National Park. He, then, he had been a military <clears throat> officer in World War I. He had a degree in engineering. Here's a planner, right? He's about as close as to ecological management as you get because he could design areas to be preserved. He was the superintendent at Yellowstone and he was uh, they, they would shut down Yellowstone for the winter. And so he would come back to Denver and he would be sent out to be a sort of team leader to study all these new parks where the weather was warmer down in the Southwest. And so he leads a team in 1934 down into Big Bend and he does this report and he says, This will work. It's got obstacles. Uh, here's your costs, here's your distance and isolation, but here's your benefits. And then it was taken back to the Park Service and it was read by a gentleman who gets attention now for a whole different reason than we gave him attention in the past. A young wildlife biologist named George Melendez Wright, who uh, started the wildlife division in 1929 for the Park Service, using some of his own family money. His mother was from Nicaragua. His father was an Irish ship captain. Uh, You know, they married, they moved to San Francisco. He grew up there. Uh, there's a lot of attention now. The, the Park Service has a George Wright Society for over 40 years, but they never added Melendez till recently because we've changed our consciousness there. But he read about this and he said, well, my argument is that ecozones are unified. Don't separate them Don't or don't shrink them. Uh, you know, let the ecozone do its thing. The second thing he said was, You've got an ecozone on this border, which is divided artificially, right? Just because Mexico and the United States are different. So it isn't just, let's get the ranchers out of there. Let's get the farmers, uh, don't, don't let the farmers come in and irrigate. There's that kind of ecozone unification that he's doing other places. He said, let's get the diplomatic uh, divide out of there. So he started pushing that, and he could speak in Spanish. And he could understand the people who spoke to him that did not speak English, who may not have trusted Americans, didn't understand American systems. He became the face of the international park and the voice of the international park that no one else could have done. He brought the wildlife management dynamic as a plus. You can see how he was a multi layered figure in a multi layered land. He knew the internal workings of the Park Service. He had created the preservation of wildlife, not just a natural beauty, and he could speak Spanish. And so the Mexican officials loved it. All of a sudden, all those American officials had a team leader that no one had anticipated. And so for about 12 months, they were doing meetings back and forth in the border up in El Paso. And then in February of 1936, in comes the American team and the Mexican team. And those are the pictures in the book of them riding, driving across the river and meeting on each side of the river and the interplay and the eating of Mexican food at the at the little cantinas, boquillas. You know, it's it's almost, you know, I don't think Hollywood could have scripted it like that. And so there's how the International Park looked like it was going to come to life. Just, you know, may I use a bad pun organically? It was just going to grow because it made sense in the landscape. I was going to say indigenous, but that has been moved into a cultural domain from a biological domain, but it looked like it would just grow naturally. And so then, as always happens with Big Bend, the unexpected and the tragedy, Roger Toll, who was the systems man, and George Melendez Wright, who was the Ecology man and the diplomacy man, you know, those two guys get in a car. And so this team of two is driving away from Big Ben and they're heading out to Arizona to go work on the border with Arizona and Mexico to work with the, uh, you know, the uh, people of the Tohono, Tohono O'odham, uh, you know, uh, uh, landscape uh, uh, community. And the the, uh, Mexican landscape to create uh, the national park there, they were going to study four national park sites on the border all the way to California, all the way to Yuma. And so the the, uh, good neighbor policy was just going to come full-blown organically. Congress would have all of this laid in front of them, pay for all of it. Mexico would suddenly be an equal partner, and then a car wreck happened. They were going down a two-lane road from Hatch, New Mexico, which is famous for its green chili more than anything else, heading diagonally down towards the highway um, uh, Deming where the railroad line runs out to Tucson, and at night, somebody veered out of their lane, ran into them, and killed both Toll and George Wright. And that removed the two champions of systems management, wildlife preservation, and then the third dimension of cultural and diplomatic, um, you know, interaction. And so, from that point on, it had to be taken over by those who did not have any of those qualities. I guess that's the whole point. If you lose the leader, you know, what do you lose besides a person? So there was, there's a real sense of utter tragedy there, again, uh, because George Melendez Wright had the ear of the Park Service people. He had the ear of the Roosevelt administration. The State Department couldn't believe their good fortune to have a guy like him, and so he vanished. Now, he also vanished from the Park Service's consciousness, too. The Park Service started cutting back on wildlife management. The Congress start cutting budgets late in the 30s, became more conservative. World War II came about. So eventually what happened was the Park Service no longer needed his office. They shut it down. And then his memory just disappeared into the 50s and 60s. So in 1980, when they create the George Wright Society, it is really ecology people who bring him back for that dimension of his life and not as George Melendez Wright. I came across all of that in the records. I came across all of that in interviews with people in Mexico. Uh, if, if, if George Melendez Wright wanted it, we'll be in. All right. Qué rico. Let's go. Uh, and that vanished. And then, of course, World War II and the 50s and 60s Cold War and Vietnam and the return of radicalism in government in Mexico. Uh, there was no place for a long time for that collaboration, that harmony, that interaction, that we had seen in the 30s.
1: Yeah, it's a really, it's a really sad story in a yes. lot of ways, and, and a story of, uh, of you know, kind of sliding doors, right? What, what would have happened? What might the national parks on the southern border in the southwest look like if, uh, you know, a, a driver heading in one direction had swerved at the right moment instead of at the wrong moment, right? It's, you know, historians we don't love counterfactuals, but uh, it's, it's one of those those kind of great what if sort of moments in national park history.
0: Well, it may though reveal something. that is true. And that is, was anybody else ready to step in and take over?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And is it, was it, was it this convergence of forces in these two individuals and these Mexican officials and then American officials after 1936, Franklin Roosevelt's budgets are cut and then, you know, the war is uh, looming larger. Uh, The, one of the ironies of this story is, is that people keep pushing the park and, the uh, Roosevelt administration keeps pushing that idea, so it becomes a park in June of 1944, six days after D-Day. Mm-hmm. And the president had wanted to come out and be there to, uh, you know, dedicate the park, and he couldn't because when D-Day hit, it was game on in Europe. It's kind of like you know, president, you know, presidents that have to drop everything and turn to a crisis. And so you never got the glow of residential um, motorcade and the uh, bylines of reporters coming out. And so for a long time, Big Ben never got out from under the shadow of, uh, uh, you know, of um, not being noticed when it was created. And for a long time, the visitation count was down. The budget was down. It wasn't until the mission 66 program came along in the 1950s where a billion dollars was divided among, among a number of parks and Big Ben got a share, but it was all facilities development. And so the numbers were small for 20, 30, 40 years uh, into the 70s and 80s. Um, the change occurred, you know, if we can start bringing this idea to closure for you about the border and the International Peace Park. It was an ironic change again in 1980. Uh you know, we do not ascribe it, just as we don't ascribe to Herbert Hoover, a consciousness consciousness about preserving worthless land, which now white. I under you know, I think I think it's this weekend that I read that the tours to go out and see the atomic bomb site you can do it twice a year, haha, October and April. You understand why? <laughs> the environmental reason we don't have you in July and August when the tourists are driving through, and so. Uh, you're going to come out and you'll go through the White Sands Missile Range that I wrote about to get there. And you may then go on over to White Sands National Park now. A story just came out two weeks ago that we've just discovered these footprints from 25,000 years ago. Well, it was all buried in the sand when I was writing about that 30 years ago. So I could not speak to this great discovery. Well, you get to be a national park and you get more staffing and you get more laboratory time. and so you can devote yourself to that there's so many fascinating stories about that area uh that we need to explore but if had it not been for herbert hoover wanting to do something about worthless lands despite the reputation at the moment or in history books ever since you know i i guess my joke is is that you know he was he's a worthless president to many but he set aside worthless lands and we are now the Carlsbad Caverns, people travel from all over the world to try to figure out how that could be and so on. So the great turn in 1980 that was not expected was when President Ronald Reagan took over. And a message started going out that maybe we needed to be more interactive with Mexico. And this time they had some ecologists on board. And so there was some agreement signed between the United States and Mexico. Uh, Not so much about Big Ben, but about, uh, you know, water quality and, you know, some wildlife studies and protecting birds and so on. There's a famous La Paz agreement signed in Mexico in 1983. Mexican and U.S. ecologists are joining about, you know, the, you know, the, the making water quality better. The water that's coming out of Mexico into the United States needs to be cleaned up and so on. So the Reagan administration maybe because he came out of California, maybe because he was trying to move the party in another direction. Politicians has been known to do that. Uh, they became more understanding. So by the late 80s, what you had was a return to the consciousness that maybe we ought to work together. Mm-hmm. The next president, George H.W. Bush, had Latino family members. And so he continued that idea and that message was being sent to the Park Service, but you had to be cautious. You couldn't be, uh, you know, all in like you were with Roosevelt, but you you kept pushing it. Uh, and then in the 1990s, uh, when the Clinton administration took over, they decided to uh, restore progressive ideas of environmental protection and the idea of the, uh, you know, good neighbor policy. Uh, he had a Spanish-speaking Interior Secretary, Bruce Babbitt from Arizona. And they appointed the first Spanish-speaking superintendent to Big Bend in 1994, José Cisneros. And it was he who then said, I want a big study of this place I've taken over. He was a native of San Antonio. He had worked at San Antonio Mission, so he knew not just Texas and Latino Texas. He knew the Park Service story. So when he got to Big Bend, he said, I want a big story, and I want to see... The uniqueness of the landscape and the cultural dynamics of the landscape woven in there.
1: So, as we begin to wrap up here, why don't we bring the story up to the present? day a little bit i'm curious mm-hmm. what is the status of the park today and when i say status i mean the practical things how how is the visitation today who is going mm-hmm. there how popular of a park is it but i also mean in terms of its politics that's been one of the major themes running through our whole conversation is that this site being situated where it is has always mm-hmm. been this sort of uh uh uh, uh this, this kind of nexus point for as we talked about earlier you know politics environment and culture so what is the status in all the various meanings of that word of the park today
0: well, the park is a, the, the status today is a function of the last generation of change and continuity uh, on the border. So in one sense, the, the way the park operates today is no surprise. It's fairly built out with resources, uh, you know, after the Mission 66 uh, revolution, uh, which, you know, upgraded the visitor facilities. Uh, You know, there wasn't much of a change, really, uh, until the money that's been coming very recently with, uh, uh, you know, with the the Interior Department and, you know, the uh, Biden administration. And so there's that. The second thing that started flowing forward out of the 1990s was once people start thinking they could push the idea forward of the International Peace Park, then we revisited the 30s. And that's why I was so fortunate to be there in the 90s uh, to watch Mexican officials step up, watch a Spanish-speaking superintendent step out, uh, to be directed to go to Mexico and do research, to go and do interviews. I was sent twice to Ciudad Chihuahua, Chihuahua City, uh, to interview people at the universities and natural resource officials. I was invited to come to some of the uh, international conferences in in El Paso. There was a conference in the summer of nineteen fall of nineteen ninety nine in Big Bend, uh, in the superintendent's home, out in his on his patio, where the U.S. Interior Secretary and the Mexican Interior Secretary Julia, a woman Julia Carabias, came and their staffs. I was the only person that was not a credentialed uh, Interior State Department official allowed to come, no reporters, because the superintendent said, I want you there, because there was where they were going to ha- to connect all of that history into a working plan. And it was going to launch forward into 2000 as the culmination of all the good work uh, on the border. And if that came about, then maybe the awareness of the need for better facilities, uh, better staffing, Uh, multi you know, uh, the bilingual staffing and so on. All of that was present. I still can see in my mind watching the moon rise over the Mexican cliffs, you know, they were that close, the river was two, 300 yards away and listening to the conversation, the soup, the interior secretary and the Mexican interior secretary conducted the meeting in Spanish. And there I was scrambling to just get all the verbs and nouns right so that I could go ask questions later. It was all, it was, you know, muy interesante, you know, muy romantico, and on and on like that. So, what happened? Well, the election of 2000 changed things in both countries. The 911 crisis of 2001 shut down the border. The militarization of the border up and down. Uh, the Southwest, not just the Rio Grande, uh, you know, as the war in Iraq and Afghanistan unfolded. uh, That put a lot of those imaginative efforts on hold, just like World War II did in the 1940s. And so talk about back to the future. And that's the benefit of doing the long study that Jose Cisneros wanted just don't do episodes or just don't do policy manual applications, Where why did we put the campgrounds where we did and so on. He wanted that, that French idea of the long durée, the long duration of time. And so you can watch the sort of return to the past and then the launching forward. So what happened was when the Obama administration came in in 2008, they brought in a Spanish speaking Interior Secretary, Ken Salazar from my state of Colorado. And he was told restore the benefits of the interaction that was attempted 10, 15 years ago, All right, just as uh, Clinton's people wanted to try to maintain or enhance the quiet diplomacy and partnerships of Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And so Obama's people started making a push toward that, and so agreements were made, and the Mexican government agreed upon a map that showed lands that they were going to set aside and these protegidos, areas de protegidos, protected areas. They could not go to a full park, you know, dimension, but there were gonna be these areas, no more development, or we're gonna rewild it there. They start using that term, uh, a major corporation in Mexico, uh, you know, uh, the Samex, uh, uh, the concrete, uh, the, the big uh, concrete construction company, uh, Mexico Samex, came in and start buying up acreage, and then they, you know, start fencing it off and they start letting wild animals back. They were hiring American and Mexican wildlife people. If George Melendez Wright had come back and watched that, he'd have smile and said, "Well, duh." You know, that's what we were trying 60 years ago. So there was all that hopefulness uh, in, you know, under Obama. And then that all changed again. And suddenly the message went out that the border has to be closed again. And that is where we are today. So the cycles of interaction and conflict, the cycles of uh, partnerships and you know, and uh, not just competition, but distrust, um, they set in. The cycle that doesn't change is environmental. I guess that's the ultimate tragedy, is if we look to the environment, that cycle has just been there for as long as the rocks have been there, All right? The people are the ones who have cycled it in and out. And beyond, before people who spoke English came in, there's something about that hard landscape that makes people feel that if they they want to control it as well as people who feel they have to accommodate it or they feel they leave it alone and they don't come so i guess that's why there's those three stories about big ben should i not go should i accept it or should i control it And that's where we are today
1: yeah um and at the end of my conversations, I always like to ask my guests to kind of uh, imagine themselves from the other end of one of these books. Instead of being the person writing the book, imagine yourself sure. as someone who has who has read this book. And I'm curious what you would hope that a reader would come away from this book remembering or understanding several months or a year or even five years after reading the book itself. What's sort of like the the big sticking point that you would hope someone would come away understanding here?
0: Well, if I may, I'd like to borrow something from the culture of George Melendez's right,'s mother. People who spoke Spanish have interacted with that landscape much longer than those who spoke English. They, in turn, interacted with that landscape much less than the people who passed through uh, millennia ago, centuries ago, right? who everybody saw the same landscape and everybody had to encounter the, do I ignore it? Do I fight it? or do I accept it, Right, the sort of th- triangulation of it? Okay, But I like to think that since it's got so many Spanish names mixed with native names, I tried to get across in there, if some, if people read it, that it's a, it's a mixed landscape, mountain, desert, river. They are mixed people in it. There are mixed motives in it, and there's mixed outcomes. The word in Spanish that was used for the mixing of people, whether it was voluntary or forced, Spanish start talking about mestizaje, mestiza, mestizo, mixture. That's all it was. It wasn't racial, it wasn't ethnic, it wasn't language. People who were not one or the other anymore And I can't define them, but there they are. We've taken a long journey trying to figure out that. And so when people came into that landscape, I hope those who read it think everybody had to learn anew and for themselves what it meant to live in a mixed world that demands much. And I think that's what I say in the introduction. It demands much and gives little. And so if we took away the idea of mixing from the book, Then you can begin to understand George Melendez Wright and the Park Service. The chapter I wrote about the Rangers, I was utterly fascinated with that duality. Are they guardians or are they warriors? The tragedy of the Vietnam War and the Park Service was the hiring of Vietnam vets and giving them jobs to go out in the middle of nowhere to be Rangers, A, because they had that combat training and could put up with harsh conditions and be law enforcement on top of it and be they may have had PTSD and they needed to be away from your yellowstones and yosemites and your national capital mall and so on vietnam got that or excuse me big bend got that big bend then became a training ground during the drug war for uh, drug enforcement agents to come because where better to get ready to go into Mexico to fight drug lords than right across the border. And so I interviewed people and there were shootouts in the streets of the little towns where drug drug agents and park service rangers together went down into the park in the 70s and uh, came away telling stories about how they were reenacting John Wayne They were reenacting the Wild West, Uh, the ranger story. So if I think there's one story that is not told now, now that we're telling George Melendez is right, I think it's great. If we could tell the story about what it meant to have to come in and bring the Park Service to Big Bend, uh, that was not an easy task at all. There was a superintendent that had to be removed because he liked to ride out ride around with a gun on his hip and he liked to chase bandidos and he liked to get rustlers and put him you know you know in a, in a uh, wagon and send him to presidio to you know go to court uh, it was it was not a good time in the 70s for dealing with the border and so i don't want to say sympathize with the rangers and i don't want to say glorify the rangers just try to understand what it meant to go in there and have to represent you know the green and the gray uh, it's a different world completely for all those dimensions we talked about and who would know better than any tourist any reporter any politician any superintendent that stays three years who would know better than the rangers that's my takeaway that, for for the reader
1: yeah 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 um which would you know would make would a great book in and of itself really yeah
0: Well, a history of rangers everywhere would be fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then for my final question, I always like to get a preview from my guests of what they are working on next. Do you have another uh, national park history that you're working on or any other projects that you would like to give us a, a very brief preview of?
0: Well, I guess the lesson I've had for 30 years of working in park service histories and 40 years of working with Army engineer histories is that You never know what's the next project, but you get an idea while you're doing one, just a classic academic style. But what's the question that's on the table for what you're studying that will not only benefit you, but will benefit others? Because if you write about these institutions, these organizations, they don't exist for themselves. They exist for others. In the case of the Army Engineers, it's national security or it's uh, reclamation projects, right? Uh, For the Park Service, it's for the visitor, for the student, for the communities around them and so on. So you do have to have a more third-person look at yourself as you look at your projects than if you say, boy, I'm now going to go do that because that's what I want to do. But you are still an academic and you have to find your own path. So where I'm going now, that is a build on to the work I've done in the past with the Park Service, Army Engineers, my teaching, is the new idea we're developing in historical profession training, and that is career readiness. The Park Service needs a new generation of young people who can come in with the skills that they require to come in with the knowledge of the outside world that will resonate with the visitor um, you know with the museum exhibit designer you know uh, or with the uh, ecologist uh, whomever they would you know be working with so career readiness is something that's out there in so many ways we do a lot of teacher training the university of northern colorado So 70% of our students don't need career readiness from me. You know, they're getting that going into the classroom. But for the 30% of the majors who want to use their knowledge and skills, if they're interested in either our region, the West, or they're interested in ecology and the environment, or they're interested in cultural dynamics, they are wanting to know more about parks. So here's where we're headed with that idea. Last summer, a couple summers ago, I decided to teach a summer course called America's National Parks. And what we did is we looked at just the sort of essential documents of the park system. We looked at some, you know, diaries and journals of visitors. We looked at some newspaper stories about controversies or celebrations of 100 years of Yellowstone in 1972. We just did the classic upper division academic, um, you know, journey through sources that spoke to this evolution, just like we do when we put a monograph together. Well, it was a small class, but the students really loved it and was gonna to try to do it again. But then the idea was presented, did, did I, was, was there some sort of a project I could do with students to do their own research rather than me handing them stuff? So last summer, we got a small grant from our university to hire four of our graduate students to go down to Denver to take uh, spend time collecting uh, and scanning documents from the National Park Service's record group, 79, which I've used a lot in my work, and to see if we could create a database of sources that people have not seen or can't go see because you have to go to the archives themselves. They're not online. No one's excited about studying hiring patterns at Mesa Verde, everybody wants to study the ruins, so you got plenty of that, but you don't have the management of the parks. Uh, And then the stories the parks don't tell, native stories, for example, Um, you know, stories of rescues. So we went in and worked in the uh, records of eight national parks in Colorado, big ones, Rocky, for example, Mesa Verde, and then small ones, Dinosaur, for example, Colorado National, Great Sand Dunes. And so we have a database now that uh, we put up a couple thousand entries between online sources, scans. And so what we're gonna do this coming summer is we've applied for money, more money to hire more students. And we wanna shift from record group 79 in the interior department to stories we found in the park service records for our part of the world, which were native stories, natives on the land before the park, what happened when they were driven away and park was created. And then did the park over time try to restore the stories even if they could not restore the people or the land? So was there a virtual presence of native life as opposed to a real presence? So we're moving over to Record Group 75, Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is the records of all the reservations. And we're gonna focus on the Ute people of the Southwestern part of our state because we found a lot of material in the Park Service's stories about taking Ute land And then once parks were created and then the service needed more Ute land because more visitors wanted to come to the sites. So redrawing the boundaries. And then when visitors said, well, what's the native story? Well, it was tough getting Utes to tell their stories. So you emphasize the vanished farmers that were called Anasazi by the archeologists. So we're going to try to develop a database of Ute sources because the Park Service records pushed us in that direction. We've been told by the archivists in Denver for the National Park Service that we could do this for any tribe, whether they have a park nearby like Glacier, all right, Yellowstone, or they don't, like Rocky, Grand Canyon, well, oh no, Grand Canyon, 22 tribes. You can see, we could stay focused on Tribe Park. We could stay, go bigger park, or go bigger with Tribe, parks in it. So we're trying to learn a digital humanities perspective on this that flows out of the need to go now and ask the organizing, managing people, why would you do what you did? Put it on the table. It's the essence of the research now on the boarding schools. People now are asking, why did we ever have them? Why did they unfold the way they did? Not just Why are the children in the graveyards with no names on their tombstones? There's where we're headed now with organization and management. And so that's why, you know, I appreciate uh, Steve taking the time to drag, you know, to present this sort of idea that is not as, you know, you know, prominent in scholarship, but it's coming.
1: Dr. Michael Welsh is a professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado, and his new book is Big Bend National Park, Mexico, the United States, and a Borderland Ecosystem, which came out with the University of Nevada, excuse me, the University of Nevada Press in 2021. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Steve, the same. Best of luck to you with the podcast.